Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Well, this is the second of our uh, podcasts that we recorded at uh, Opera Holland Park last Saturday. Our first uh, first live event for 18 months. Fantastic. Uh, Opera Holland Park in, in, in West London lent us there. Beautiful venue, outdoors. Uh, spectacular place, wasn't it, Dave? Under canvas. It's one of those places where people walked in and they were immediately kind of enchanted. Because because it wasn't like, like any other gig or concert hall that you've been to before really because it was all separate items of furniture you were sitting yeah. on there chairs and you know lovely old chairs almost different. sofas you know and there were people on the front row who were who were so comfortable you know yeah. if you if you pay for the premium tickets you got on the front row which is literally that is the best seat in the and there they were with their, with their bottles of wine yeah. and, their, and, their, and their grapes you know oh, their food it was wonderful absolutely but we fantastic. had four guests we had Gary Crowley we had uh, Mark Lewison we had Danny Baker and our second guest was the uh, fantastic writer um, Leslie Ann Jones and the four stories that she tells are, 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 are flagged up at the beginning of this but look out for farcical stuff about why it was impossible to lift John Entwistle's coffin at his funeral uh, and how the <laughs> how his girlfriend ran off with the vicar. Knockabout movie waiting to be made there starring Bill Nye. And uh, you have to hear about the pictures that were hung on Raquel Welsh's wall. It's fan- and good stuff on the stones too. It's fantastic. <laughs> Here you go. Excellent. Fantastic. Lucky so look, we 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 got to start with uh, with Queen at Live Aid because you were telling us earlier that that actually relationships too small. Should we stand? You're going to be all right. We'll stand. I'm too tiny. Are you there? You're I'm there. too tiny. Hello, boys. Warren's going to fall over now. <laughs> Hello, boys. <laughs> no, you, were, you were telling us earlier that uh, which I had no idea actually. Dave and I were at Live Aid, but we weren't allowed backstage. No, it was a very no. exciting backstage with Queen. But the relationship between them was a bit frosty, and they were at the point of splitting up. Uh, well, am I right in thinking that was the You're case? You're right. It was like married couples divorcing at the same party. You know that sort of frostiness that you get? And they were keeping their distance from each other. 
complicated by the fact that Jim Hutton, who was Freddie's relatively new boyfriend, it was not only his first stadium gig, it was his first ever gig. So imagine Live Aid as your first ever... He'd never been to a gig before. Never been to a gig, he was a barber. And he'd cut David Bowie's hair, but David Bowie denied it. And uh, this was when he was a barber at the Savoy. And uh, Bowie used to circle around and say, no, I've never met you before, but, but actually he had. Uh, but no, he'd never been to a gig. So but That would be a bit of a shock. Um, I think it probably was. Uh, everybody's seen Bohemian Rhapsody, the film, I'm guessing. Uh, they show in the film that Freddie and Jim set off from Freddie's house in Kensington, just down the road from here, and they go to, to Freddie's mum and dad's house. And Freddie introduces Jim to his parents. Didn't happen. Absolutely didn't happen. I, I, I wasn't sure why they invented that. It's filmed. Because that is a lot to go on in one day, isn't it, if you think? I'm, yeah, I'm I think they took the same approach as the Second World War, things. really, didn't they? You know, but you're, you're going to meet your, your partner's mum and dad. Not only that, but they are, are of a very tight-knit religious group, yeah. and they're probably not going to be that welcoming, especially since you are also a man, and you've got the biggest gig in the world, the, the greatest stage you've ever played on. All of that in one day. I, I just, it didn't ring true for me. No. But they spent three weeks rehearsing for that, so they took it incredibly seriously, didn't they? I mean, yeah, they did. And, uh, and, and, and when they came off, did, did you get the impression that they knew that they'd completely cracked it? Because they kind of stole the day, really, didn't they? No, they, they didn't. They were hardly talking, as I said. Uh, they had a secret thing that they did. And they, there was a flicker of this in the film. I spotted it. They had a sound guy called Trip Caliph. And just before Queen went out on stage, Trip went out, and you sort of see a hint of this. You see a, a finger pushing the lever like this. And this was a reference to the fact that the sound man went round to the front and he whacked the sound up. So when Queen went out on stage, they were louder than everybody else, to the point that everybody backstage stopped and looked at the monitor and, and said, Who, who's that? And of course, in the film, they show what looks like Bono coming off stage just as Queen go on. Of course, it wasn't you two who played before Queen. It was Dire Straits. But I don't know whether there was an argument with Mark Knopfler. I have to ask Ed Bittnell, actually, the mm -hmm. manager. But I, I don't know what happened there. So I've got to go through these four things that you talked oh, about. Oh, yeah, OK. Rock and roll funerals. Yeah. <laughs> have you been to more than one or just one? To the best of my knowledge, and things were sometimes hazy in the 80s and 90s, you have to understand. But as far as I remember, I only went to one, and it was John Entwistle. Bass player in the and hit. he was an old pal of yours, I think. Yeah, he, but he had a place up in the Cotswolds. He right? did. He had a house called Quarwood in Stow on the World, and I'd got to know John when Gary and I were presenting a, a TV show in the way back when on Channel Four uh, called Earthday. So we had lots of stars on the show, and we became friends with them, as you did in those days. It seems hard to imagine now that, that journalists pretty much could could become friends with artists, but we did, and so started hanging out with John. I was very friendly with his girlfriend, Maxine, a mad American. And they had crazy parties at their house. So there was a shark room at John's house, uh, this room that was hung with sharks uh, and marlin that John had caught himself. And then they were um, preserved in some way. So they all hung down from the ceiling. So that was, and the dare was to spend a, a, a night on your own in that room. 
And he collected suits of armor, teapots, chess sets. Collected suits of armor? Yeah. So there were a number of them. All over the house. All, so you're blundering around to the loo yeah. in the, day, in the night. Right. Did you ever wear them? And I was about to say, sometimes you'd be plundering around for the loo in the middle of the night and you'd bump into a suit of armour and it would be John inside it. (laughs) That was his his shtick, yeah. John Entwistle seems to me to be the classic case of somebody who was in a very successful rock band and making a lot of money but had no real responsibility. The group were not looking to him to write the songs and keep the momentum up. He could just behave as riotously as he liked. But he which did, I mean, he did. on stage, he just stood there. They called him the ox, didn't they? Because yeah. he just stood still. He barely moved a muscle apart from his fingers, his thunder fingers. And he was a very loud bassist. I think they had the record for playing the loudest rock gig ever. I think they broke a record at some point. But his Give us funeral, the flavor of the funeral. Who was the favorite of the funeral? Did Give us a flavour. Flavour. Okay. Okay. So tell us about the death that led to the funeral. Not that you were present at the time, but the uh, death was the finest rock and roll death anyone could have had. So the Who were about to tour in America. They were in Las Vegas. Uh, they were in a motel. John had a favourite stripper who lived in Vegas, who he always called upon. Let's say when he was in the old town. Old sentimental fool. Hey? <laughs> Got a few quid off. There's one in every port. <laughs> she looked different with the clothes on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they tend to. And so he'd been partying with this girl, Alison. They'd done a load of coke. They'd gone back. They were in bed. He was up to here in brandy, under a hooker, and he died. He was 57. And everybody went rock it's and roll. It's the way he would have wanted to go. Rock and roll. <laughs> His girlfriend wasn't that amused. Were you surprised that he died? Yeah, I was actually, because I didn't know at the time what a cokehead he was. I had no idea, because, you know, in those days, and my kids find this very hard to believe, they always say, oh, come on, mummy, you did drugs. And actually, we didn't. We drank an awful lot of champagne. That was the 80s. But we didn't do drugs. So we, and they, the people who did it concealed it from those of us who didn't do it. So actually, no, I, I didn't know, and I was surprised. The funeral was mayhem because, and I didn't know this before, anyone can go to anyone's funeral. So it's a public affair. Anyone can turn up, and everyone did turn up. There were hundreds of Who fans there. And they had a massive coffin. The coffin was, it must have taken about five trees to make it. It was a a vast thing. And they'd underestimated what this thing was going to weigh. Because John wasn't a small guy, if you remember. He He was tall. And so they got John in the coffin. And they had the six pool bearers. And they couldn't lift it to carry it into the church. And somebody had to drive back to the funeral parlor to get a trolley. To, to put the, the, the coffin on the trolley, so everything was delayed while they went off to get this trolley. It's true. And then they came back, put it on the trolley, and then the pallbearers, this was amusing, they lined up either side of the coffin and then sort of shuffled in to make it look as though they were carrying it. So it was a bit of a carry-on film. Farce, isn't it? It was a farce. And then, of course, Pete Townsend and Roger came in at the last minute and they were very upset. Um, Like, really, really upset. And then there was the wailing widow, which was Lisa, Lisa Pritchett Johnson, who was John's girlfriend at that time, uh, who he'd stolen from Joe Walsh and the Eagles. And uh, John's mother, Queenie. From Joe Walsh to John. From (laughs) Joe Walsh to John Hesswistle. Frying pan fire. This is sublime to the extra ridiculous that was. And then there was John's mum, Queenie, who was practically throwing herself on the coffin. I thought she was going to go in the grave afterwards, but 
they managed to keep her out. There was this very nice chap called Colin Wilson, uh, the Reverend Colin Wilson, who conducted, officiated at the funeral. He was rather sweet, actually. He was especially sweet to Lisa Pritchett Johnson because they began an affair soon afterwards. And so the, the grieving widow is, ran off, ran with, off the with the vicar. Okay. It's good stuff, isn't it? It's Tom Sharp could move this up, could it, really? (laughs) The press were all over Stowe on the Wold after this happened. You can imagine, the the poor wife of the vicar and two little girls didn't know what hit them. And I remember they interviewed one of the neighbours on television. And she said, oh, he was such a nice man. He'd always come round and say, uh, uh, can I water your flowers or anything? Always ready to do whatever you wanted. And I thought, yes, I bet he was. Um, He got defrocked. Eventually. Dear Eddie. And, um, yeah. That's extraordinary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Let's let's move on to... uh... David Bowie's holiday home, which I jokingly said was a chalet at, uh, in Rill or Filey or whatever. You borrowed David Bowie's holiday home. Tell us about this. So, yes, it's a, uh, an Indonesian palace in, uh, on the Isle of Mystique. And uh, I have a witness to the fact that uh, we did go. My daughter, who's over there, uh, was with me at the time. She was only a little girl. We stayed at David's house. I, I used to see David quite a lot in New York because back in the day, pre-internet, when I was working on Fleet Street, you couldn't just go online or Zoom anybody or do an interview in any way other than to go there. So we were always getting on and off planes. Uh, every week you'd be going, you some weeks twice to New York and back. Did a lot of Concord flights in those days and I was often in New York and David was living in New York at that time. I used to bump into him and he'd say, well, what are you doing? Do you want, do you want to have some lunch or do you want to have dinner tonight or whatever? So we did meet up quite often and it was simply because David Bowie also a Jones, like me. He, he loved people from home. He was very London, if, if that makes sense. And he just liked hanging out with people from the old days because he was ordinary. 
which seems an extraordinary thing to say, but he just liked to be not a rock star. He liked to be just David Jones. And then he met Iman. Iman went, she was, she is Somalian born. Uh, she didn't like the whole setup in Mustique because it's very much rich white people owning houses and poor black people being their servants. And that didn't appeal to her as a black woman. So she told him he had to sell it. So before he offloaded uh, his house there, it was called Britannia Bay House in those days, he decided he was gonna send all his friends out there to, to experience the place. So Mia and I went out and I wrote the first draft of my first Freddie Mercury book in his house. Uh, we were sleeping in his bed with his view of St. Vincent and trying to soak up his DNA out of the mattress. I'm going to say, because when, when you borrow a holiday home, you always see there's little signs all around the place of the people who own it or, or were last there, you know. And you can't stop being fascinated by, oh, look, the wellies are at the front door. Or, was there anything like that at David Bowie's place? There were his knickers. There, <laughs> there was a drawer of knickers. In fact, they, maybe they were his. They were very frilly kind of female oh, knickers. Right. So, I mean, maybe they were sort of um, ones that people borrowed when they stayed in the place. But there were some nice pictures of him, framed pictures around the place. It was very tasteful, very Balinese, very... Um, it had taken a long time to design and build. Right. Yeah. So you, you go back, back with Hall, David Bowie, don't you? Because you, you used to come and visit him at Haddon Hall, the famous squat in, in the early 70s, is that right? No, it was a bit later than that. When, when we were at school... Actually, no. The first time I went round there would have been the time Space Oddity came out. And David had been trying to give it away and couldn't for about 10 years and then suddenly had a hit because they used, the BBC used Space Odyssey as the soundtrack for the moon landings. And we were just little kids at school in Bromley and he was down the road in Beckenham. So we used to get the 227 bus from the market square that he wrote about all the way down to Beckenham High Street, walk up South End Road and knock on his door as kids do and to get signed photos, you see. And I said to my friend Natasha, who I was at school with, one day, Angie, his wife, she's going to be out and he's going to answer the door and he's going to have us in for tea. And that's what happened. And as ridiculous as that sounds... I know. <laughs> um, I remember sitting there thinking, he had a silver ceiling and, and red bottle green furniture, red walls. It was like Christmas. The room was like Christmas. And he was wearing a lemon silk kimono and painting his fingernails with black polish with a cocktail stick because he'd lost the brush. And he was barefoot and very exotic. And I thought, I have to grow up and be with people like this. But how? You know, we, ha we were the kind of house that had lace neck curtains and crocheted toilet roll covers and that kind of thing. How was I going to do this? I wasn't artistic. I wasn't musical. But my dad, who'd been a footballer, was now a sports writer. And the pennies dropped. I suddenly thought, I can do that. I can go on the road with bands and write about them. So how did you end up sharing a house with Raquel Welsh? <laughs> In Atlantic City... Uh, years earlier, I had got to know a guy called Hal Lifson, who was a, a sort of Hollywood fixer type person. And he, he was managing Latoya Jackson at the time. And when I moved to Los Angeles, when I was on You magazine for the Mail on Sunday, 
he said, give me a shout when you're, when you're in town. And I was staying at the Sunset Marquee Hotel for about two months, but you can't stay there forever. And uh, he said, a friend of mine's looking for a housemate. Uh, in fact, somebody I, I look after. Oh, who's that? He said, um, have you heard of Raquel Welsh? So somehow the word housemate doesn't somehow yeah. work. It's the idea you're going to the laundrette together and yeah. a couple of glasses of wine. It was a bit you know. more than that, really, because, because Raquel was the most insecure person I'd ever met in my life. And really, I had a function, and that function was to make her feel good and to look good. So I had to call her Rocky, and she called me Baby. And she spoke in the third person always. And she'd say, um, does Rocky look good today, baby? Because a girl's got to know. And, and I'd have to lavish her with praise and attention and, and tell her how beautiful she was. And there were pictures all over the house of her, stark naked, in various sort of poses, life-size portraits. You could not. Her nipples followed you wherever you went. It was. It was disconcerting. We used to get on there. a chronic psychological condition. Yeah, I mean, I needed help. You know, I needed. Uh, but there counseling. are some people who, who, who you know, they, they accept they have a level of celebrity and then keep the other side of their life completely private and uh, act a certain way in public. But there are others that obviously just cannot survive without that kind of level of attention. She needed. She's one she, of them. Oh yeah, she desperately needed. And her best friend was Nancy Sinatra. And they both... So keep it grounded, wouldn't they? You really? know. Um, so we would go to the Beverly Hills Hotel and we would sit around the pool and we'd have our nails done and uh, we'd go out to dinner. And, of course, they were always on. They were never not Raquel and Nancy. They were always stars. And my function was to make them feel like stars. Yeah. I was a lackey. Um, and, uh, yeah, I probably should have had psychological help when I got back from that. But, um, yeah, it follows me around. So you've written books about, uh, about uh, Freddie Mercury, about, uh, about uh, John Lennon. What are you working on at the moment? Stones, what are you doing? Next year, uh, July 2022, is the 60th anniversary of the Rolling Stones' very first gig at the Marquee Jazz Club on the 12th of July, 1962. So I'm writing a book called The Stone Age, covering their entire career and, and how we regard the Stones today, I guess, which is very different from how we, we thought about the Stones all those years ago. Who's your favourite stone? Keith. All right, simple. Yeah. Why? I got a friend called Peter Myers, who was actually my dad's friend, my late dad's friend. He's got a grocery store on Hudson Street in Lower Manhattan. It's called Myers of Keswick, and it's a store that sells English foods to expats living in New York. So, uh, and he makes pies on the premises, and and the queues at Christmas for the mince pies are four blocks long. Peter's famous. Peter actually catered a couple of Rolling Stones New York gigs, and. Keith lives in Connecticut now, and Keith and Peter have become friends. So every time Keith gets home to the States, the first thing he does is go to Myers of Keswick, and he and Peter sit down over a china pot of tea, and they have a cup of tea, and they, they uh, chew the card. And to this day, Keith always sends... Peter, a crate of wine at Christmas time, but it's not any old wine, it's a Cabernet Sauvignon and it's got a Rolling Stones lapping tongue logo on it, the label, uh, collector's items. Right. Which they famously paid about £10 to the designer for, didn't they? John Pash, who was my boss at Chrysalis Records, John Pash, when he was an art student, uh, was paid, I think, about £85 for his designs for the most famous 
logo, let alone rock and roll logo, the most famous logo in the world. And years later, because he, he was then art director at Chris Lewis, we, we used to tease the hell out of him and say, John, come on, you know, you've got 85 quid. They're making millions out of this. Look at the merchandise. Oh, yeah, I suppose maybe I should have tried to get a bit more. So he took them to court, and I think he got about seven grand. And the Stones are laughing, you know. <laughs> this, this, this is Mick, the most parsimonious man, parsimonious man on earth. So... It turned around because some years later, John was moving house. He found in his attic the original drawings, the sketches that uh. he'd first shown Mick Jagger, which he sold to the V&A for enough money to put his son through private school. There's a lot of people doing this at the moment, going through their souvenirs, finding an original John, Don McLean. Don McLean every 20 minutes. He found uh, the original uh, American Pie. American Pie, and that sold for something like $1.3 million. Weirdly, the next day, he said I'd gone through another room and he'd found all sorts of lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> you know. so, He's uh, had yeah. a tax bill, that's so, what's happened. So there's all sorts of No, there's a good story there. I just jump in because. Um, Jim Hutton, who was Freddie's boyfriend, yeah. we mentioned earlier, Freddie gave Jim the original lyrics to Bohemian Rhapsody. And after Freddie died, they all had a little trunk in the house with their personal belongings in. And unfortunately, all the men who lived at Garden Lodge, Freddie's house, they were all kicked out quite rapidly. They were supposed to be allowed to live there until they could find somewhere else to live, but that isn't what happened. And we won't name names, but it didn't happen. So they were all forced to leave quite quickly, and Jim never got his trunk back. So wherever that trunk is, the original lyrics to Bohemian Rhapsody are in there. Wow. Think of the final closing shot of the Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's somewhere in there. <laughs> You've got to find it. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll have an interval there. Leslie Ann Jones. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. 